Can we pray together for a moment? Lord God, Paul uh, tells us in uh, these first verses that he has been set apart for the gospel, and we pray that uh, by your Spirit we may be able to set apart this time for us to uh, understand the gospel better in heart and mind so as to share it with others, we pray. Amen. Well, let me add my own uh, welcome to that of Nigel. My name's Alan, uh, Alan Strange. I'm the rector here at Trinity. Uh, Most summers uh, for the last uh, 20 years, we've uh, gone to the same part of the States uh, and spent part of the summer there. One of our regular trips when we are in the States is to uh, the town of Littleton in New Hampshire and to the uh, sweet shop uh, Chutters. Because Chutters has the longest can- candy counter in the world. I know that because it says so. Uh, the candy counter at uh, Chutters stretches to, to the back doors there from about, um, I should think, here. And um, uh, it's lined with uh, sweet jars in three rows, uh, and they're very proud of it. And of course, when we first discovered it as a family, we, we went all over it. We went from jelly beans to chocolate swirls, and you know, we did the whole. Then over time, I've become a much more discerning customer. I now only get uh, jelly beans. In fact, now I only get the citrus-flavored jelly beans. I know what to do at the longest candy counter in the world. Now, uh, and you see children coming into this place and just having a kind of sugar explosion on the spot. They cannot believe that they're going to be allowed, um, in a couple of dollars or whatever it is, uh, to go and fill bags uh, wherever they want. And that atmosphere, that kind of sense, is how I feel at being allowed to uh, get into Romans with you over these next... uh, well, tonight and these next few weeks uh, and probably months, though we won't do it, I think, all at one stretch. I feel like a kid in a candy store. Uh, and in these first verses, a bit like me when I was uh, first uh, in Chutters, I just want to grab handfuls all over the place, really, um, and, uh, and just think, oh, good stuff, good stuff, good stuff, good stuff. Now, I'm going to hope that uh, over time it will make sense and we'll kind of understand that actually, no, we prefer the citrus jelly beans or whatever it may be. But uh, you may have to cope with a degree of handful of this, handful of that, handful of because I'm just so, I, mean, I am genuinely really excited about this. I've got a thing on one of, or two of my programs on the computer and um, uh, I asked uh, Mike, because I rely on him for everything computery and he didn't know the name for this either, that... Um, it's not just like a link, but when you, when you go to a press um, or click on, on something, um, eight or ten headers open up, and then you go to that one of those headers, and then eight or ten more headers opens up from that. And that's really what these verses are doing. Lots of these phrases in these first seven verses of Romans represent places we can click, and whole stretches of Romans would open up for us. What Paul is doing is, 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 is parking these markers that he's going to come back to 
And each one of them opens up whole stretches. So tonight, I I can't take you to the whole stretches because that's what the whole series is going to be about. But I'm hoping to take you through some of those headers. Uh, Let's spend uh, ten minutes or so just on the first word. Uh, Paul. Uh, It's uh, only joking. (laughs) It won't be ten minutes. Probably. Uh, That is, it is not Saul. Saul was the name he was born with. He was Saul the Pharisee. He was on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus because the the, the news of Jesus had already got as far as Damascus. And he's on the way to persecute the Christians there. He's thrown to the ground by an explosion of light, and he sees a vision in which he hears Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he answers, who are you, Lord? That moment changes his life. It, uh, he takes on a new identity and becomes Paul. This Paul, we learn from verse 1, is a servant, slave, the words are the same. He's an apostle, which means uh, a sent one. And he is separated or set apart for the gospel. We'll come to the gospel in a minute. But I just want to stay with those first uh, words and and ideas. Because it means that in verse 1 alone, we have learned that this Paul is not his own. He has a new life, a new name. He believes his life belongs to another. He's not a free man, but he's a servant or slave. He's not a man in charge of his direction, but a sent man. He's not a man heading for his own destiny, but a man whose destiny has been snapped in two, and he's heading now for the purpose of the gospel, separated from his previous life in order to do so. Now, what I want to do, that's one of those kind of little headers. I want that just to sit in your mind, sort of gently throbbing uh, in the background for a while. To follow Jesus, whatever else we're going to say, from this one verse, we should pick up. That to follow Jesus is to belong to another. To pursue the direction of another. To have an identity that is other. To have a future that is other. How many of your friends in this world are like that? And does it infect you that they are not like that? Have you forgotten that it is to be for you like that? But that's all I can do. I can't be detained there. I've got to to go on. On to the citrus jelly beans. Paul is set apart for one thing. The gospel. The gospel, verse 2 that uh, God promised beforehand. And if you follow it through, you will find that all the way through to verse 6 is a description of what this gospel is. Gospel, it just means the word good news. This is the start. And it is going to be the story, Romans, uh, the letter to the church in Rome. It is going to be the story of the good news the adventures of the gospel itself. Now, here's one of the good bits to to grab and hold on to. This gospel is Jewish. That is, it finds its place, not in the rank paganism of the Roman Empire around Paul, 
nor in some kind of outright novelty. Oh, this is new, let's do this. No, it has a source. What is the first thing Paul says about it? It is promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I'm not even going to explain yet why that bit matters very much. Just hold it. But notice it is the first thing he says. The roots are in our ancient writings. Not sure that's where I would have begun, but it's where he begins. And this good news concerns his son. And we're going to read verses 3 to 5. Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Well, the words just unroll. There isn't a word there that you need help to understand. But how do we make sense of it? How do we put it all together? Well, there is a balance there. And I think, whoa, what was it? Um, uh, about 1977, so getting on 40 years ago, when I first encountered Romans. <clears throat> I think I probably would then have said, yeah, okay, I, I get this. Um, uh, this is who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God. So, aha, human nature, descendant of David, uh, through the spirit, as an, oppos- as an alternative, declared with power to be the Son of God. Okay, so that's... Uh, human nature, uh, he looks like uh, this sort of history line coming from David, uh, but the spiritual line uh, uh, comes from God himself. Uh, and, and actually, that's there in the original text. It says, uh, according to the flesh, son of David, according to the spirit of holiness, uh, uh, resurrected from the dead, as the Son of God. But, the problem we face, and it's true for so much of the New Testament, is that, if I can put it like this, we read thinly instead of thickly. Let me explain. We read according to the flesh, according to the human nature, and we read according to spirit and think, ah, well, we, ah we, we get that. This must mean that. Flesh and spirit in opposition. Material, spiritual, yeah, we get that. But what we're doing is we're reading very thinly because actually that's a, uh, an expression, setting material and spiritual in opposition to each other that comes from our world. They would have known nothing of that. And as a balance to it, what we have to do is to go uh, and, and remember that every word in the New Testament is written with a background in the Old Testament. 
So for us, we hear the word David, and it's a thin word, because it means, oh yeah, that guy we knew about, he was naughty with Bathsheba, and he played a musical instrument a bit, and he was a king. And we go back to that stretch of history. And what we forget is that the thickness of history that David inhabits is much greater. And what I want to do to kind of illustrate this is we're going to do some searching through the Bible. The Jewish scriptures read the name David thickly because that name has references through time. And I want to read that name as having at least two aspects that come from this thick history. Now, this is going to be a challenge, but stay with me. I hope it'll be worth it by the time we get to an end and stack it all up. Uh, Those two aspects are ruler and raised. So first of all, let's find our way to uh, Psalm uh, Psalm 2. He said Psalms, chapter 2. Psalm 2, verse 7. Uh, Page 543 in the church Bibles. Psalm 2 was one of the psalms that Jesus uh, used more than any other, along with Psalm 110, and the early church used more than any other to say, this is who Jesus is. So Psalm 2 and verse 7, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ooh, son-father reference, we'll get that a little later. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. So the nations of the world are going to belong to this figure. Well, of course they will, because God is the creator of the whole earth, and a God whose realm is the whole earth cannot be confined only to one nation. The psalmist, who was held to be David, writes of one world one God. So God's anointed must be in charge of all the nations. But let's move on to a couple of hundred years after. This is what I mean by thick. It's a couple of hundred years later now. Let's move on to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10. Page 696. Yes, still there. 696. There's a prophecy uh, in Isaiah here about the root of Jesse. Jesse was David's father, and the implication is that though many of those who uh, came out of David's own family were a waste of space, nonetheless God would go back to the root that was still in the ground from Jesse and raise up a new figure in the household of David. Verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. The nations are going to be coming to David's successor. See what I mean? This is a thick description of David. Not just the the man who lived and was king, but this is carrying the weight of expectation now that persists through to Isaiah. There is going to be a ruler, and the nations will be brought before him, and he will rule the nations. 
Now go back, because we want to think about this idea of raised, uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. It's page 311. Um, the background is that David has been thinking, well, I've, I've got everything I was promised. I've got everything that um, I wanted. I do just wonder whether I should build a temple for God. And God speaks to David about that through the prophet Nathan. And, the Nathan, says, and Nathan says to him, no, you don't need to build a temple because I'm going to make your house secure without the need for a temple. The house holds your kind of uh, heritage. So chapter 7 and verse 12, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. Well, okay, you say that's pretty much like what we've already heard in the Psalms and in in Isaiah. Uh, Now, when the the people of uh, Paul's day read the Old Testament, they would have known it in two different ways. Just like today, they would have known it in Hebrew and they'd have had the readings uh, when they went to synagogue, they'd have followed in the Torah, the scrolls of of the law. But they would also have known it for its kind of regular everyday purposes in the language of that part of the empire, which was Greek. And in the Greek translation of the verse we've just read, when it says, I will raise up, your offspring to succeed you. The word used is, I will resurrect your offspring to succeed you. So no one had said, oh yeah, I know what that means. Yeah, that means there's someone going to get raised up from the dead. I know that. No one said that. But what it did mean was that when it happened, they then went back and said, oh, do you remember that verse in 2 Samuel 7 and 12? And now, with some relief, no doubt, you can go back to Romans. And in verse... uh, Eyes, eyes, eyes. Four. uh, Through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. That does not mean resurrection from death. Uh, It means... it's, it's, It's plural... Uh, resurrection from among the dead ones. It was the phrase that was used in Jewish expectation to speak about the great day that was coming, and any good Pharisee knew that that great day would come, when the um, uh, the, the whole peoples of the world would be raised to face either life or judgment, according to the Jewish law. So when Paul here says that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead ones, what he means is not, yeah, well, there was this one-off instance where Jesus was resurrected from death. What he means is this is the beginning of the process of the general resurrection of all the dead. Now, again, what I want to convey is this sense that this is, these are thick. They've got, they've got a history behind them. The one raised in verse 4, 
precisely because he was raised, must be, for them, the Son of God. Okay? A little bit more, another of those kind of buttons to press for a moment, Son of God. What are we going to do about Son of God? Son of God does not mean, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That might be true for us. Please God, it is true for us. But it wouldn't have meant that, that, that early in the, in, the, in the tradition. What it means for the Jews in their scriptures is that the one who would follow in David's footsteps, in David's line, would be a son of God, roughly parallel to what David was. So those verses do not mean, according to the flesh, the son of David, because that was a sort of natural line, but according to the spirit, the son of God, because that was the spiritual line. Rather, they mean the same thing, but confirmed in two different ways. Uh, Let me put it like this. Let me sort of rephrase it. According to the fleshly nature, as to his seed, the one bookend in life, your seed, where you start from, this one will be the son of David. And moreover, according to the spirit of holiness at work in his resurrection from the dead, the other bookend in life, there too he will be the Davidic son of God. The whole thing, in other words, from beginning to end and beyond the end, because he gets raised, is there as a confirmation of who he is within the expectation of God's people. And all of it because he is Messiah. Jesus Christ is not a first name, a Christian name, and a surname. Christ is simply the Greek word for Messiah. means the anointed one. The anointed one that was there in Psalm 2. So again, you've got this expectation. Everything about this Jesus, these verses are telling us, everything about the story of the good news about him confirms him as being the one, the Messiah, the son of David. It's Jewish. And what was the Messiah to be and to do? To rule the nations as Israel should have done on God's behalf, but never did do. The resurrection doesn't make Jesus the son of God, But Paul says here, it declares him to be what he already was in God's purposes. Now again, another time for those, one of those kind of buttons to press, and then the the headers open up. The spirit of holiness there in verse 4. Oh, that's nice. We've got Father somewhere, we've got the Son, and we've got the Spirit. Good, isn't that nice? We've got three. It's not what they would have registered. The spirit of holiness, which is one of their (coughs) names, it was the Jewish name for God's own spirit. And they knew that if anyone said that the spirit of holiness was busy and active in the life of God's people, it could only be because finally, after so many years of deadweight expectation and hope that was constantly crushed. If the spirit of holiness is here, then the end times are upon us. Jewish interpretation knew that the times of the spirit were the times of the end. The anointed one has been raised from the dead, 
to rule the world by the power of the spirit of holiness, which means the end is upon us. Now that should lead to the question, and so what? Well, verse 5 tells us, his rule over the Gentiles is expressed as he calls people to him through his servant, slave, Paul, and others from among all the Gentiles to a life of believing obedience. And that, my friends, is you. You are there in verse 6. You are among those who are called to belong. You are there in verse 7. Loved by God and called to be saints. You have been called to come under the rule of this raised Messiah. Even, says Paul, you in Rome, where there is another who thinks he's the Son of God, And so on that basis, because you were called, I can pray upon you the grace and peace that he offers in verse uh, 7. Well, where does it leave us? I think we're all a bit panic-struck when we read this stuff. I was thinking, oh, no, I've got, it's evening service, I've probably got some, some of those young people in the service. They're not going to want to know about the Jewishness of, 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 uh, the, the gospel. And the image that came to me, I suppose, came because of something we did yesterday. We, um, Natalie and I went to the movies uh, yesterday afternoon. Uh, not to see uh, The Theory of Everything uh, or American Sniper, though I'd quite like to see it, um, but rather Shaun the Sheep. Um, It is a great thing to go and see a children's movie when you don't have children to distract you. Uh, And there is a... Has anyone seen Shaun the Sheep yet? Oh, no. Well, you must go. You must go. So, so good. So good. Uh, Vital cultural experience. Anyway, at at the end of Shaun the Sheep, there, there is this mighty and very threatening um, digger. I suppose, of the kind that makes small children go, oh, digger, digger, digger. Um, And perhaps that's because it's in my mind uh, as an illustration of of what this Jewishness is really about here. I suspect that so often what we come to the scriptures and what we're looking for is is some way in which, as it were, uh, God and ourselves, well, I'm driving a go-kart, really, and it would be awfully nice if Jesus would just kind of come alongside and help me drive my go-kart. And it's okay, go-karts are fast and fun, and they, uh, they do what they're supposed to do, and maybe Jesus has some advice on the driving of go-karts for you in your life. Maybe there are ways in which Jesus wants to come alongside and say things to you about your life. But what Romans is telling us at the beginning is that God's purposes are not confined to go-karts. God is actually constructing a mighty, humongous engine 
like some, some great Soviet locomotive of the old days. Unbelievable levels of power. It takes a while to put together something that's that powerful. But once that power is underway, not much stops it. Has anyone caught on Facebook? Uh, it's been going, doing the rounds. I've had it at least two or three times sent to me. The picture of the Canadian train moving through snow. Yeah, one nod. One nod. Very grave nod. Thank you, Philip. Uh, go, go looking on Facebook if you want to for um, uh, the Canadian train moving through snow. It's not like English snow, you know, where the wrong kind of snow stops the trains. This thing, you can't actually see it, see it for part of the time it's arriving. There's just this white cloud moving forward. And you really wouldn't want to be in the way, because as you watch it go past, you realize it's a freight train, and there's about 50 carriage, uh, not carriages, but uh, containers and freight uh, trucks uh, behind it. And it would simply not be possible to stop it quickly. That's the sort of thing God is putting together in the gospel. And nothing is going to stop it. And what I want us to take from Romans, even just in this quick trip through the headers, is that the very Jewishness of the, uh, of the gospel means that nothing is going to stop God's purposes. He will take your identity if you will surrender it to him and give you a new one. He will take your purposes and make them his. He will take all that you are and bend them to his purpose. The purpose that God has is not to invite you to let his purposes into your life, but rather he wants you to let your life into his purposes. If I asked you for an illustration this, this evening, for those of you who are already following Jesus, to tell me... What, give me an illustration of the faithfulness of God. I suspect we would kind of rack our brains and we would think of some prayer we'd made or some promise that we'd been given. And we would think of our own lives. We would think of the go-kart. It's not wrong, but the train is a great deal mightier. But if I ask you for the faithfulness of God and I take you to Romans and I take you to the thickness of Romans, where the gospel is unveiled to us as coming from the purposes of God from all eternity, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but not a single purpose of God's has failed, then you can be confident, utterly rock-solidly confident, that if God has been faithful to the promises, and their promises are there in verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand, if God has been faithful to those promises, then you younger people need never be afraid. You go to school, you go to college, you go to wherever you go to next week. And yes, of course, all the usual rubbish of life will come your way. The answer you long for might be in the details, but it is certainly in this, that the God who has for thousands of years kept his promise 
in Jesus Christ will not suddenly decide to abandon those whom he has called to belong to the rule of his anointed one. Let's pray. And let me say, as, as, we, as we pray now, there will be, as Nigel said, opportunity to pray with others later. Perhaps you are longing for God to move in your life in some way. But we offer prayer ministry tonight, not because we simply want to pat you on the back for your hopes or to hold your hand in your anxieties, but because God has been faithful. And if he has been this faithful that these seven verses declare him to be, he will not let us go. And so, Lord God, we come to you now, uh, repenting, I suppose, of all those times when we thought, oh, well, we've been let down again. And we thank you that your gospel purposes have, as one song says, been faithful through 10,000 years. And if they have been faithful like that, we know that you cannot find it in your nature to abandon us. So as you have called us so far, continue to call us forward. Through the servants you send around us today, and let us live out your purposes in lives of believing obedience in this our generation. For we do not know how many more generations the, there will be if the spirit of holiness has been unleashed upon the end times. Amen.